0: Being black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast.
1: Yo, yo, Daph, what's going on? What's going on? How's your week been?
0: Uh, it's been pretty good. I call myself, you know how over spring break you want to do a lot of work. You're like, oh, I'm going to be so productive on this spring break. And I, I did start spring break that way, but by Thursday I just quit and I've been chilling ever since. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, you better enjoy that week. Shoot. Sure that week off and that time off and relax a little bit you know you're out here working hard collecting that data and all that traveling and stuff so.
0: Yeah. so yeah so yeah yeah that's me what what have you been up to
1: well yeah i just had my spring break too so my wife and i just came back from vacation you know spent the whole ah. week out there in saint lucia so that was Ooh. fun i uh, never been out there before you know i like the caribbean islands i like being around my black folk Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. eventually we'll get out to all those like European countries, yada, yada, yada. But you know, I really enjoy being in a country where countries and giving my dollars, my tourist dollars, at least to black countries. Yeah. um, More than other places. So it was fun. It was fun. You know, nice to get some sun out of the cold for a little bit.
0: Yeah. Um, I think it would also be cool to just go somewhere and you're just surrounded by black people. Like to, to be honest, especially, you know, to our, you know, like non-black listeners, There are a lot of black Americans who have never been in a place where everybody you just look around, everybody in leadership, everybody, um, the business people, just everybody around you is black. That's a different experience. And it can almost be like a culture shock, like what the heck is going on here i've never seen this before in my life um so that that can be a beautiful thing um i'm going to jamaica at the end of next month well Mm. i'm going on a am going on a cruise and we're going to stop in jamaica but i told john i was like i really want to go there like i don't want to do like one of those like fancy cruise excursions like i want to go and be a part of the country Mm -hmm. like we gonna go on a search we gonna find some jerk chicken we gonna we want an authentic experience (laughs) you know so
1: yeah that's what i want that's what i like to do too um it's really like yeah get their real food real culture um and, and one thing that caught my mind i want to share this too on the podcast we was at we were at saint lucia we went on a tour right to like their major um kind of major area, uh, Soufriere, which is like, because, you know, a lot of these Caribbean islands are built from volcanoes, right? And and so it was like, you know, it's this area that was first built, the first town of St. Lucia, and it's where the kind of entrance to the volcano is and all this other stuff. So we wanted to go there and see the town, and, you know, we went through a tour. And what I found kind of problematic is, because, you know, a lot of these Caribbean islands were also colonized, and there were also slavery and a lot of things like that. But mm-hmm. the way the, and, you know, like you said, everybody is black and the tour guy was a black woman. And, you know, me and Chris were only um the black people in the tours. Everybody else is white. But the way they would describe certain things like, you know, oh, we're Roman Catholic because of the French influence. And this, that thing was like the French influence or the British influence. But it was really a result of like, you know, slavery, brutality, colonization. Um, yeah. And it kind of like softened the narrative of what really happened throughout these mm. tours and throughout how they explain things to these white folk. And, you know, I really caught that. I was like, oh, uh, you know, I was like, nah, tell them how it is. This is your history. They're coming to your land to learn about what your people went through. And it wasn't as like this soft, peachy, you know, influence kind of thing. Like they just sat down and taught you this, you know. You like it forced.
0: was a cultural exchange yeah. or something. Like, no, it was yeah, cultural it was, domination. Exactly.
1: And so, you know, I mean, it's... I just, you know, I really wish that in these settings that they take advantage of, like, giving the real nitty-gritty of what the facts of what actually happened and not, like, softening it for these folk. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, you know, that's something I just noticed. And I'm sure they're not the only people or country that does that with these tourists, mainly because if you have a lot of white tourists, you know, you don't want them to go leave in any kind of way. But I would like to see it the real deal, you know? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, that You know what? Well... I, I'll get. Maybe we can get to this next week. After more people have saw us, mm-hmm. Jordan peels us. Okay. But hit, I feel like that movie kind of speaks to like how we rewrite things in a certain light to make ourselves feel better. So mm. I, I'm not gonna go into that. We can discuss that maybe uh, at in the opening next okay, week.
1: Okay. Yeah, I'm about to see that in a couple hours, so I'll definitely be ready to talk about it. <laughs>
0: okay, okay okay i had to see it. i
1: wasn't gonna see it i wasn't gonna wait till next weekend but when i was looking on social media everybody's like trying to get these spoilers so bad i'm like nah man
0: i can't you're I can't not gonna last it. for a week <laughs> you're not gonna, it's already like it's 70 million dollars
1: yes. so. so 70 million i've seen all these like people really trying to go deep dive explaining the ending people putting up memes like i haven't i haven't saw any spoilers but i'm seeing like it only been out a couple of days and everybody's already going ham. <clears throat> so I'm like, all right, let me go see it before it gets ruined for me.
0: Yeah, it will be. Go see it today. Mm-hmm. Go see it. Go and see. we'll talk about it next week.
1: Alright, um, so uh, as you all know, you know we don't have any old Lord news this week, or maybe you didn't know. It's the last episode of the month, so this is our kind of sip and tea episode where we just go through you know, current events throughout the month and some major things that we want to talk about. So in this episode, we have Jameer Abney joining us, who was uh, with us before, one of the earlier ones, and has rejoined us again mainly because of his position in the um, college administration. So one of the things, college admissions, and one of the things we spend a lot of time talking about is the college admission scandal. So we wanted his expertise in this. And we talked about that and the various other topics dealing with reparations and some other policies that have been implemented as well. Um, so, you know, hope you all enjoy.
0: And yeah. We'll,
1: we'll get into it. All right, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Black and Holly Dangerous podcast. Uh, this is you know, our special episode that we do at the end of every month, Sipping Tea with B.H.D. Uh, today, we have a very special returning guest, Jameer Abney, joining us once again. How you doing, Jameer?
2: I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back on. Um, just uh, remembering from before, uh, work at work at Colgate University. Mm-hmm. I'm in college admissions. I'm a senior assistant dean of admission there. And uh, really intrigued to be back on and talk about some of the latest that's happening in my professional space. Yes. Uh, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely.
0: Uh, that was one of the reasons that we wanted to speak with Jameer. You know, he's an expert. He's in the field, and as you know, this college admission scandal has kind of rocked his field. So that's one of the major topics we'll discuss today. So we're really happy to have you back on.
1: All right. Yeah. For sure. So you know, let's get right into it because <laughs> uh, it's a big scandal. You know, every at the end of every month we want to talk about some of the biggest things that's happened throughout the month and of course this college admissions scandal has been the talk everywhere pretty much on every news outlet for a lot of reasons but i think one of the biggest reasons too not only how intricate the scandal was but there was a lot of celebrity involvement as well um Mm -hmm. so maybe we can just start with giving kind of a brief overview of what happened and then we'll get into some of the details and our thoughts
2: Yes. Yes. You mentioned um, the celebrities. The two headlines uh, that we saw, the two biggest celebrities were Lori Laughlin, who everyone knows as Aunt Becky um, from Full, The Full House Show, and then Felicity Huffman, who was um, a star on Desperate Housewives when it was running. And so those were the two prominent names that were kind of featured um, as figures who were involved in what really was a fraud and bribery uh, scandal. Um, But at the heart of it, in terms of actually leading some of um, the work that was done, was a man named William Singer, who was a college consultant. Basically, what he was doing was working with these prominent, um, wealthy um, families, particularly parents, to be able to guarantee, I guess, admission for their students in some of the most selective colleges, where they were doing everything from paying for uh, testing, um, to have proctors actually change answers or take tests, uh, for, for students or, um, actually working directly with, um, uh, people in athletics at some of these colleges to be able to, um, pay a coach money to, uh, reserve a slot for a potential applicant or on one of the sports teams and going so far as to create fake profiles, um, uh, screenshots where they would um, do Photoshop and edit the picture to put their their student's face on there and include them as being recruited for sports and in some cases sports that they didn't even play or had never even had experience with and have the opportunity for them to be to come into a university as a recruited athlete so it was really a mix of a few different things happening to be able to allow uh, these parents to, to, again, get their kids guaranteed admission into some of these more selective institutions, what included people from proctors of exams to athletic coaches, um, administrators for some of these exams. Um, and at this point, they're still gathering the details of who all should be implicated in this scheme, but basically it's called uh, really the college admission space into question particularly around um, the admission process uh, for wealthy families, for legacies we talked a little bit about before, um, but really a conversation around what is the, the ethics and the efficacy around the work that we do.
1: So, yeah, man. So, you know, just listening to the story and how it worked. I mean, one, it's just like, I think I share the sentiment of a lot of the public where it's just like you people are already privileged and now you're continuously using your privilege to gain access to institutions where you already, for the most part, have the upper hand. And what I've seen in a lot of other conversations, you know, although many, much of it has, you know, focused around the scandal itself, but it's spurred into how other wealthy folks or people who have money also have these privileges within college admissions, right? Um, and I think we highlighted that in some point, too, where it's about, you know, they get access to maybe, you um, uh, like sat or or you know sat or act prep courses and things like that or ch- going to uh, traveling to colleges to go on campus where other people who don't have money may not be able to do or other ways that they can use funds to get their foot in the door to see that they have these ways and then also still you know kind of cheating the system as well so is pretty alarming in a lot of ways
0: so my big question is why didn't they just do what every other wealthy family does, and just make a huge donation. Uh, So you think Jared Kushner's parents made a $2.5 million donation to Harvard. Um, And some people say that his high school transcripts did not necessarily marriage. Entrance or admittance into Harvard. Actually, there was just an announcement from Dr. Dre saying that um, his daughter got into USC without him having to do jail time. But you know, five years ago, he donated seventy million dollars to the school, and that's mm-hmm. completely legal. Um, but I mean, that's that's how people have been buying their ways way into college for years, and I don't I don't know why they just didn't do that if they were going to
2: pay. Yeah, definitely. And I think as you look at it and some of the defendants in this case and people that have been named is you have folks who are maybe not quite that wealthy uh, where you can donate for a building or you can make sure that you're able to um, stand out in that way as a donor. And so you have families trying to find maybe another way at these places where they're admitting such a small percentage of their applicants. Um, and so looking for this loophole, basically, and in some of the um, overviews of this, um, whether um, it's things from NPR, or you've seen the New York Times, is actually talking about a guarantee. And basically what Mr. Singer had created or the conversation around it is that there's this guarantee that your, your child will be admitted because of the, the different relationships that um, they had through the company that he managed to be able to make sure that their student was going to get in, because in a lot of these places, um, even if um, you have this student who's a, who's a stellar student or a stellar athlete, or even in some cases um, is the child of, a, of an alum or a donor, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to, going to admit that student. And so I think that, that conversation around the guarantee is something that you see there in a family wanting to just be certain. I guess you could say, but definitely as you talk about um, the case of Dr. Dre and with others, um, including Jared Kushner, there is you can legally in some respects you've seen pay to it to have that student be at the top of the list um, because of those considerations by the institution.
1: You know, one, one thing um, that, you know, I just was just very interesting to me in a lot of ways is the fact how they used you know, sports, you know, and they say sports opened a back door to these elite colleges where they would be paid, whether they're coaches or some administrators, whoever to secure admission admission for the students. Um, and some, some of them didn't even play the sport. I've seen the, uh, some details. They said students faces were like Photoshop on the athletes bodies and put all these kind of bogus achievements and whatnot, um, attributed to these students that didn't even play some of these sports. Um, so I guess from an admissions perspective, Thinking of it, and I'm not sure, so I'm sure some of our listeners may not be sure either. How does it work when when it comes to athletics? Is there a set number of spots open? And so if a coach just says, you know, I want this scholarship to go to this student that we want, the school automatically gives it to them or they accept it. How does that process
2: work? So, yeah. So with athletics, it really depends, Um, I think, a lot on the institution and what level they're competing at. So, Um, If you have a program where it's Division I, the highest level, where there are scholarship athletes, then they do have a certain number of slots on the team that they can award scholarships or even in some places, they're able to do like a partial scholarship and be able to bring in more athletes in that way. Uh, But typically, there is a relationship between the admission office and the athletics department. But to some degree, in terms of recruitment and outreach, the coaches are really in charge of those things on their own to find the athletes that they're interested in. And then the admission office is there to say, okay, is this someone who's admissible who would be able to academically qualify here? And so there are typically some, some level of minimum standards in terms of GPA and testing and how they might fit from an academic sense. But the coaches are really kind of the leaders in that recruitment process. And that's um, can create sometimes on some campuses a very tenuous relationship between athletics and admissions, just depending upon, um, how important athletics is, um, the level um, at a level like Division III um, for the NCAA where there's no uh, academic or athletic scholarship, sorry, then it's a little bit different because then you're looking at all of the students, including student athletes, based on their admissibility. And, yes, you want to fill those teams, and, yes, you want to be competitive, but there is no scholarship conversation. So mm. when you take away that, that changes the calculus a little bit. Um, to how that plays into the admission process. So definitely nuanced differences that exist. We have scholarship versus no scholarship, um, particular sports and the number of student athletes that they might need versus sports that are smaller and uh, maybe more individualized, something like golf or tennis versus something like football where you have 60, 70, 80 people that might be a part of the program and filling those teams um, is a little little bit harder. Uh, so, those conversations uh, do come into play. But definitely, I think when you look at this situation, they were able to find a particular loophole when you think about athletics because it is a little bit different. Um, but also, want to be mindful of the fact that, in particular, admission officers um, have not been implicated in any of these conversations. And so, really being understanding that we've tried and on our end of it to to be uh, very ethical about this process but there are so many moving parts that something like athletics can kind of slip through the cracks there
1: yeah I'm thinking um, of you know a part of the questions too that people have been talking about or is pretty much who when we're talking about consequences who should be punished right Um, and, and and it's good that you mentioned that, yes, a lot of the college admissions and administrators or well, college administrators and admissions um, have not been implicated in this. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of it has talked to those people like the coaches and athletic departments. Of course, the people are looking to be punitive against the parents, per se. And then there's also conversation of should the students um, get in trouble as well, uh, which I don't think they've gotten that far yet, but it's interesting. Interesting to see what may happen. What are your thoughts as far as the consequences for these actions and if the students should be held liable
2: at all? Well, that's a tough one because it's the question. The first question is how much did the students know, and were, were these rogue parents who were kind of being the helicopter parent and going above and beyond, or was there some level of collusion there? Where you have the students really much a, a player in this, because especially when you think about the athletics conversation, like there's an entire different process that exists there as a recruited athlete in terms of communication and outreach and their responsibilities to the school and to a scholarship. Like how do you not know about something like that? And how are you not aware if you're receiving communication from a coach or information about an athletic scholarship for a sport that maybe you don't play? Like that's, that seems a little bit tricky that you're completely out of the know there. And I think in, in some of those circumstances, then you'd have to hold that student um, responsible to some degree, Mm -hmm. but then it's, it's just really gets tricky when you get into the details of it, of how much did they know? What did they not know? Um, And if you have a student, depending on where they are in their academic process, like how do schools move forward? So I think definitely going forward, there are going to be really tough conversations by college administrators and leaders to think about okay, are we removing these students completely? And does that go on their their permanent record as they think about continuing their college education? And how much stock do we place into a student who says, why was it aware of this? And comes back and tries to push back against those decisions.
1: Yeah, I think it's 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 tricky. I think, yeah, along the lines of what you said, I think students who who did know what was going on, um, you know, like uh for instance getting in for playing a sport you never played in your life, um <laughs> uh, I, I think yeah, you should be held liable. Not sure yet if I wanna say criminally liable, um, but that I think there's gonna be debate about that and I still have think I have to fester and think about that a little bit more. But for sure, you know, whatever education, um, you know, as far as being removed from the school and denying your application and everything you've done since you're there, that should be definitely if you if you were willing. To know. Now, there are some students who really didn't know what their parents were do, doing behind um, closed doors, and I don't think they should be uh, punished as much. But then, you know, there's questions about that. Definitely not criminally liable, but should they still be considered or be uh, in the school if their parents got them there through illegitimate ways um you know i think the fair thing to do is to remove the students even though that might not feel the the best in the situation um uh, and also if the students too are still there i feel like their reputation even you know college campuses students will know people will find out and um I feel like the students also will have like you know their reputation along campus is not being taken seriously, be known as a cheater or getting in. I've already seen some conversations about other campuses. I think it was like Georgetown and, and a couple others where students who who are affluent, who are rich, were in class and had there were heated debate in classes where they were like having to defend their position and the reasons why they should be there because now they're getting kind of side eyed and looked at uh, because their parents have money and people are like hmm are you. Are you here for real based off your um, your own work ethic or are you here because your parents paid your way in? So it's also just kind of interesting conversation on both sides. There's no easy answer to it as of yet.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think great points. And I think it does become a very tough conversation, especially because you look around, as you said, and you're looking at your peer and you're like, well, I know like where your family is financially or I know a little bit about your circumstances. Like, how did you get here? And I think uh, another inter- interesting conversation a unique perspective is looking at students on the other end of the spectrum and thinking about students who don't come from means and, and what does that say about how they feel about um, their circumstances, whether they're someone who's admitted to one of these types of more selective institutions, or if you're at another institution thinking, well, what if that was a spot that could have been reserved for someone who legitimately worked hard and got good grades and, um, really uh, should have been considered for some of these slots. Um, There've been a lot of conversations and people brought on to talk about some of those things. Uh, One prominent author um, is Anthony Jack. Uh, His book, The Privileged Poor um, is currently, um, he's making his rounds and having conversations uh, and lectures on different college campuses and looking at um, basically how different students who are from um, lower SES socioeconomic status backgrounds how they fare at these elite colleges and, and are, are being failed and are, are really disadvantaged amongst their peers. And he talks a lot about how some of the advantages that um, you alluded to earlier, um, these legal advantages that exist for students for means for SAT tutoring and uh, particular um, prep and uh, learning academies that they can go to or be able to find ways to, to get a leg up in the process, those things still exist. But for students who have done the extra to stand out, who have worked really hard, like even if you call into question, you're looking at this particular situation, it doesn't address some of those inequalities in the system. And also for those students who feel like they should have deserved that opportunity, now they maybe feel more so like, hey, have I been slighted in some way in this process?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's true. Um, and, and I know Daphne. I know you work. You know with with schools uh, dealing with students of color from historically backgrounds and stuff like that. Um, What what are your thoughts as far as how this is not being um, fair to those type of students, right? We talk about how already the conversation about privileged students, but now students who a lot of the conversation is also focused on kind of the racial differences and and students who don't have a lot of money and how this may impact their chances of getting into college as well.
0: Well, so it was it was interesting because, Ty, you mentioned how, you know, people are, you know, giving some students the side eye. But there are students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, from minority backgrounds who are accustomed to being questioned about whether they really belong on a particular college campus, whether they got in, you know, on their own merit. And when I think about this situation i I do think about them and there was actually a recent study that came out that talked about the types of minority or black students that college officials are interested in and uh the the researcher did kind of experimental design giving or sending emails to uh, white uh, male and female female college admissions officers with different profiles of like different types of black students that, you know, could be admitted. And, you know, based on the students' interests, they go more towards students who uh, don't fit the profile of like, they might potentially rock the boat. If it looks like it's a particular type of black student that might rock the boat racially or, you know, don't ha- necessarily have like certain types of interests. They didn't get as many, as many responses. So when I think about this, I, I, I just think about all of the, the African-American students or the lower income students who don't necessarily fit uh, the, the profile that admissions officers go for.
1: Curious to know where, as far as your thoughts is, where, where do you think we should go from here you know, um, with most systems in our country, especially being a capitalistic system, it seems that those who have money, like we talk about the criminal justice system and others, especially now the education system, do fare better and have better odds of succeeding versus those that don't. So, is there a way that maybe when we look at the college admission system um, and colleges in general, can we, is there a way you think we can equal the playing field um, at all?
2: Definitely. I think uh, I'm familiar with uh, the work that Daphne just highlighted there and actually remember reading that myself. And I think it, it causes some level, level of concern about the profession. And you ask yourself, are we doing everything that we should be doing to uphold values of equity and to try to be inclusive in these processes, but also continue to question what we're doing and think about um, how we can continue to be better. And I think in this particular case, um the thing that that is challenging is how do we continue to hold the mirror up to ourselves as college admission officers and think about the work that we're doing Um, just recently on this case uh, the national association of college admission counseling or NACAC which is kind of a national i would say ethics um, organization as well as a professional development and um, kind of education organization for us as professionals uh, they made a statement in, in speaking to the particular values that they uphold. And they have something called um, the standards, uh, practices for good, um, good performance, basically their fee or their ethics um, statement that we all um, sign up to as members of the organization and say, okay, we're going to uphold certain ethics. And I think continuing as a national body and as individual institutions to remember what, uh, what we promise, I think, is, is very important there. I think something that's also uh, can continue to be done is how do we bring students into that conversation as well as professionals outside of the admission space to to evaluate what we do and to provide um, an objective view and a a different um, lens on some of this work. It's not something that I feel like can be done just in the silo of college admissions. I think we should always be reflective and be self-aware, but... Sometimes you just need someone from the outside to look at the work and say, hey, have you thought about this? Is this something that you're planning to do? Um, But also I think it's very important for us um, as admission officers and actually in talking with some of the people that work in the field, had a conversation with a mentor of mine who's a dean of admission currently and leads an undergraduate admission office and thinking about all of the different challenges and competing priorities that exist on some of these campuses. And understanding that maybe the system is not as broken, quote unquote, as people would say, but recognizing that some of this is just, there are different different things that we would like to do that we aren't able to, one reason being because of whatever the goals of the institution are what your leadership is telling you you need to accomplish. Some of it is thinking about balancing the budget. I think one of the things that doesn't come out in some of the articles and conversations is the fact that for many institutions, you're driven by the tuition that, that you need in order for you to balance your budget and to pay bills and to pay people salaries and to be able to meet the different goals that you have as an institution. And because of that, there are decisions that you're making to enroll certain students that um, can help you meet that that balanced budget. And I think in general, most admission professionals are here to do the work because they care about students. and. You're in the, in the job because you want to be a part of some of these conversations to be more equitable. And I think you see that play out in some of the um, partnerships that colleges take on where they're working with a place like a Quest Break or a Posse organization that are these national organizations that are helping us find some of that talent that maybe we wouldn't have typically found in underrepresented communities and low-income communities, students that are from a different demographic than the one that we know that colleges were originally founded to educate. And so I think some of those partnerships and relationships and a growing number of those is, is very important. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I feel like we are in a place where uh, that that narrative that uh, students of color feel like they have to be twice as good is, is being in many ways bolstered here. Because you have a situation where a wealthy wealthy family was able to buy their way in. Um, And I think in this particular case, it was done with fraud and bribery, which those things are criminal. But we talked about earlier some of the legal ways that that's being done. So thinking about how do we, within context, when we're reviewing admission applications, level that playing field as much as we can, take that context into account when we're thinking about the different places that students come from. And also recognizing that there are a lot of institutions out there that aren't these select few that are great institutions. One of the areas I think we can look at is the Equality of Opportunity Project that has looked at colleges that are really helping with access. They're helping to move uh, families and students from lower income um, backgrounds up into uh, middle and higher tier in terms of their income. And And what that shows is that it's actually not these elite colleges that are really the bastions of access and the bastions of social mobility, it's these uh, many cases, more open enrollment, less selective public institutions, community colleges that are educating a different type of student and are seeing more older students who are who are maybe um, adult learners, seeing more students that are coming um, as the first in their family to go to college or students who are from these um, lower socioeconomic backgrounds and going to college, being able to complete but then also reaping the benefits of careers and lives that allowed them to move their family into the middle class, the upper middle class, and in some cases, even in the higher levels of the income band. So when you look at that, I think that's an important note to understand that you don't have to go to this particular type of college. You don't have to have this name school in order to be successful as an adult and as a profession. Also, um, looking at the context um, of where do students go to school? And what does that mean for their outcomes just in general? Um, NPR has done some similar work in looking at that context and has written about that in um, the scope of this particular case and just talking about the fact that there are so many other um, places where students are going, but other factors that are important, like satisfaction to think about things like the outcomes and graduation rates. And that sense of belonging, I think, is very important there because sometimes a student may feel like, I have to be at this type of school, this type of reputation in order to have the access to opportunity. And that's just not necessarily true. And I think for us as admission officers, it's speaking to that conversation. It's letting students know that, hey, it's not as important that you go to this particular school to be successful. And having an honest and really authentic conversation with students and families, that the most important thing is that you go to college because of what that means, that you complete. Um, and get the degree because of the access that it affords you in terms of job opportunities, but also that you find a place that's going to support you as an individual and all of who you are, not just a place that you feel like is going to have the name recognition value that makes you and your family feel most proud, because that might not be the right fit um, in terms of what you're looking to do or for the outcomes and goals that you might have. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. I I completely agree with that. And, you know, kind of going back to what you were talking about, institutional priorities, I think about when you think about many of the name schools in recent years, they have uh, had these movements toward offering, you know, free tuition and sometimes even free room and board to families or students whose families earn like less than like 50,000 or I think for like Stanford is like less than 120,000. And I, I definitely could see getting tuition paying students in as a priority if you want to be able to support the students that you want to be able to leave the university without any student loan debt or uh, having students who can serve as donors in the future. So I, I definitely can see that. And um, kind of to your point about I I do think that is a good idea. I'm doing research uh, at a high school and to see the care that the guidance counselor is taking, taking and making sure that the students are finding somewhere that will fit who they are as a person and fit their like longer term goals in terms of like making sure they're not taking on a bunch of debt. I think that's important and I think it's a conversation that we don't have. I think people, you know, they might get caught up in the name just because it, it seems that there's not a lot of equity in terms of who can even take that opportunity. So, like, I think people just don't want it to be like, oh, you know, that big name school, it doesn't really matter. And that's that only being a conversation that happens to minority students or students from lower income backgrounds.
1: Yeah, you know, and even from, from my from my and from my perspective, you know, teaching a lot of these students, I think, yeah, I think it's important. I think you guys raised an important issue because, you know, there are programs even at my school that help or assist or allow for students that are coming from maybe underprivileged backgrounds, et cetera, to get, you know, into these college spaces. Um, but sometimes I think they kind of take this like sweeping broom and just let everybody in because they fit the criteria with really, like you said, not sitting down, not, they don't really, I don't feel like they really sit down and like, is this space the best place for you, right? Yes, maybe you can get a discount or even free, but some of the students come in um, really not understanding what college is about. Um, seem to be a little un- uh, unmotivated, uh, not really pushing themselves, and it seems like they really don't care. Like they don't want to be there, but because the opportunity came about, their parents pushed them into it, and it's and it's going. It's not. It's kind of like not helping them advance, if you will, right? Because they're failing classes, they're not taking it seriously. Then they get kicked out of the program, and then it's like, okay, well, what did you do? What could have you been doing these past two years if you were doing something that you were maybe more excited about or passionate about, um, or or whatever right because college is not for everyone um and sometimes because students don't do well in school it's something i you know i have friends i have family who in high school just didn't do well in school they struggle with it it wasn't their favorite thing and they resisted they were like i'm not going to college because i just don't like that setting, it's not a space for me. And they went on to like technical schools or trade schools and succeeded and excelled there. Um, and their, their life outcomes are better because of it instead of being forced to go into higher education where they just truly didn't enjoy it and weren't motivated to succeed in those spaces. So I think we do have to have kind of more real conversations of like, just not saying school is for everyone. Um, Cause if you're putting students there who don't really wanna be there, uh, then it's, it's gonna, I feel like be more detrimental for their overall, you know, outcomes at the end.
0: Well, I'll say that's actually one of the things that made me most upset about this cheating scandal. Lori Laughlin's daughter did not want to be in school, See? like she said as much. So they paid all this money, potentially going to go to jail for a child who didn't want to be there. Like she's a uh, like a social media influencer and literally had videos talking about oh maybe i'll try this school thing but you know i'll, I'll really just kind of go for the part like so you know and so that it, it's kind of on all ends of the spectrum sometimes parents are pushing their children to do things mm-hmm. that they don't mm-hmm. really want to do um and she could avoided this headline if she had to just listen to her child yeah,
2: yeah. yep <laughs> that's true And I think uh, to to both of your points, when we talk about fit, whether it be fit for higher education or something else, like other ways that you can find success um, in a career and in your life after schooling, is that fit, even for a college, there's not only one school that can be the right fit. And I think sometimes in admissions, we talk about fit and people think, oh, there's going to be this one magic school that. I'm in love with, and that's the one that I need to go to. There can be multiple schools that are a good fit for for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes when we're educating families and we're talking to students about finding the right fit or finding a school that you're passionate about. We also need to remind them that that can be more than one place. Like you're not anchored to this one dream school. There could be five, 10, 20 schools out of the hundreds that are out there <laughs> across the country, that provide that sense of balance of who you are as a person, your values, your interests, as well as what you would like to pursue academically. And I think having that conversation as well when we talk about fit is important, but also when you have a student that says, like this young woman, Lori Laughlin's daughter, who's like, well, I would rather do this other thing. Like there are other ways to provide education, like there are other opportunities Um, outside of the traditional four-year college university for someone to build their skills and to get the type of education, quote-unquote, that they need to be successful in the realm or industry that they're looking for, whether it be a trade, whether it be something in media, whether it be something that includes an apprenticeship or some type of hands-on work opportunity. There are lots of different ways that a student can find that experience. I know for me, right out of high school, I was offered an apprenticeship program um, in the local community that I lived in with uh, the Navy shipyard. Um, they work for the Department of Defense. Um, they're uh, public sector um, civilian individuals who have opportunities to support um, the armed services. There are a variety of different trades uh, within the shipyard. And actually, there was an apprenticeship program for graduating high school seniors that would enroll you Um, directly to work under the foreman and learn the skill and learn the trade and go right in as a full-time worker once you finished your apprenticeship. And it was a really really great opportunity, just wasn't the right fit for me. And it was something that I know um, a classmate of mine went on to do and is still working there and having a great career and makes a good salary and has good benefits and has been a good uh, fit and trajectory for them. So there are a variety of different pathways that you might take it's just finding the one that suits you. And I think for us that work on these college campuses when we're sitting in front of students, it's us being more knowledgeable about the different types of opportunities and not always streamlining or pushing students towards something that maybe isn't going to be the best opportunity for them. And I think what this scandal really highlights is just how pervasive this idea of going to particular types of schools is that for people who already have all of the advantages in place for them, they would go to the case of criminal activity to guarantee that opportunity for someone who, for a student that maybe doesn't even want it. Mm -hmm. And just being cognizant of the fact that we need to be, I think, more sensitive to the influence that we have as college admission officers and thinking about what we may be broadcasting or putting students through And especially when we think about students who are already the most marginalized in this process, the signal and the messaging that we might be sending to them and where that places them, whether they decide to go to college or not.
0: Yeah, I just, I am starting to dislike the idea that an 18 year old has to know exactly what they want to do. I wish there were more opportunities for, you know, post high school students to just take a, take a breather to figure it out, to not have to decide, oh, I'm a college student or I'm, you know, a trades person or I'm just a work person. Like, cause oftentimes we take these paths and we might get stuck or, you know, maybe when you're 19, you're not interested in college, but that doesn't mean you won't be interested at you know, 26 or 27. And so I just I wish there was more space for students to figure it out a bit and not necessarily be pushed into a particular pathway um, and maybe be stuck there forever and ne- never be able to like have upward mobility in in the sense that they might want after the fact. Because I have plenty of people that I went to high school with who, you know, maybe they weren't interested in college at the time, but now they're in their 30s. They're very interested, but life circumstances won't allow that to happen because maybe they have children or, you know, they have to keep a roof over their head. And I I just, I don't like that.
2: So, definitely, I think uh, you make a great point about students not necessarily knowing exactly what you want to do so young. And I think what you see now is the growth. Uh, one of the, the things, phenomena is the gap year is very it's very common now when it, when it necessarily didn't used to be where a student will take a year off or maybe even a couple years off before deciding if it's college or if it's something else. But also I think as you look at adult learners and maybe people who are a little bit older, maybe mid-20s or in their 30s and wanting to go back to school, Um, Lots of colleges and universities have started to respond to that a bit better with online programming, um, courses designed for uh, people who are currently um, employed or have circumstances with a family, et cetera. I know Southern New Hampshire University is one of the leaders in this and some of their online programming, and they model their program to build in the support and resources for someone who is that working person to be able to. Have access to the courses online, but also access to full time online resources in terms of um, counselors, admission officers, faculty, et cetera, to make sure that you're able to get through a uh, programming. Another school that has really um, changed the mold there is uh, Arizona State University. Their president, who came in a couple years ago, has really worked to make them one of the leaders in online um, opportunities and hybrid programming, both online and on campus for um, learners to be able to take advantage of. So those are just two of, of many schools that are out there that are that are trying to do more in that space to provide that access for adult learners to be able to take advantage if they're wanting to continue their education or start their education later in life, as well as I think a lot of people um, under... I guess, utilize the local community colleges and other two-year trade um, type schools because their format is really designed for learners along a broad range and spectrum um, in times that they may uh, be able to access courses. And so for adult learners, I think that's another avenue that could serve them better because those courses are going to be offered not just through a structured, um, typical Um, timeline of a day, but um, courses in evenings and maybe programs that are designed um, for the working adult to be able to get a certificate or get um, their full associate's degree if they're interested in that. I think those are uh, three different options, both those two schools and um, community and trade schools, community colleges and trade schools that are good options. And um, to leave us off, I think on a a positive note, um, an article that was written in uh, Medium by Jesse O'Connell and Haley Glover Um, speaks to the the potential of, uh, I think, the American populace and particularly talks about the different ways that people are really going about trying to meet the challenges before them, Um, making sure we don't fool ourselves into believing that talent can only be developed in a small handful of places. Like, there's an enormous um, diversity of opportunity that exists in America. It's one of the reasons why so many international students want to come here for post-secondary education Because there are community colleges, there are four-year comprehensive schools, there are technical schools, public, private, et cetera, different types of institutions that just don't exist around the world. And so when we think about that enormous amount of potential and different types of opportunity, I think it gives us a place to have some level of hope that this is the type of environment where lots of different types of students can thrive and find their way to the type of life and success that they might be looking for. I think we just always have to continue to have a critical eye around how we include equity, we include access, and we, um, really are inclusive in this process because there are um, these really huge inequities that exist. And I think that speaks to really the, the next part of our conversation when you think about something like reparations.
1: Yes, uh, reparations, um, you know, <laughs> it's a, a term that has been discussed for pretty much forever, uh, really dealing with a lot of race relations in this country, but has began to resurface uh, a lot recently with these presidential, Democratic presidential candidates for 2020. Um, And, you know, a few years ago, I believe it was 2014, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates put out an excellent piece Called The Case for Reparations. It's a pretty long um, article, but it really goes into a lot of details with a lot of case analysis as far as why there should be reparations. I mean, you have 250 years of slavery and Jim Crow and then separate but equal and segregation and housing, uh, racist housing policies and all the like that have really affected um, the overall wealth. And well being of the black community overall in this country. And so the conversation has been if like if the country is to make it right, should we just change laws or should there be actual resources put back directly into communities of color when we talk about reparations. And so unlike many other presidential campaigns, this one, a lot of the candidates have been talking about reparations. Um, So I want to get your get your all kind of feedback on that um, as far as the idea of reparations and how do you feel about these presidential candidates? and their viewpoints on reparations for the black community?
0: Mm. So, yes, it has been a big topic of discussion. I feel like reparations are starting to become the potential gotcha question. Like, do you support it? And if you don't, like, oh, my goodness, we have to potentially, you know, be done with you. Um, But I feel like, honestly, a lot of the people that are talking about have to support reparations. I don't even think they have a good idea of what they're talking about. I think they're just saying it because it sounds good and they want to win black votes. But I don't feel convinced that anybody actually has a for real, for real plan
1: to implement it. No, I agree, too. I think what's been happening is that uh, with these candidates and, you know, this go around, I think um, more black people and people in general are a little bit more. They're asking direct questions to these candidates of like, okay, no, what are you going to do specifically for black folk? And I'm not sure if the candidates really were prepared for that, so I think their go-to keyword has been reparations, right? Like, Because uh, we're getting caught off guard with this question, what are we going to do for black folks specifically? We don't know. We're trying to talk about the American people. But they're being pressed a little bit more about the black community in particular, and so now I feel like their kind of safe go-to word is reparations, and then- Black folks, you know, understanding what reparations are or having an idea, you know, even going back to like 40 acres and a mule, those kind of things are like, okay, maybe now we can latch on to this candidate. But as we begin to look at the details, like you said, Daphne, of the candidates and how they're classifying or defining reparations, um, a lot of what they're aligning or outlining in in their plans or whatever they're saying are not even really reparations in a lot of ways.
2: Yeah, and I think what's also interesting, you talked about um, Tanaisey Coates' uh, piece on this, is that he references not only like some different examples that are interesting to think about uh, historically, but also the the reckoning that might come if America came to a place of thinking about reparations as an actual option. Um, the two things that he highlights is, one, it's this, well, what if we can't afford it financially? But also the second conversation around having to accept white privilege and racism as being just as American as quote apple pie and just as part of the patriotic conversation as the Fourth of July and I think that creates a, a a really tough place for some Americans to be in because as he's point as he points out there's been a lot of conversation to talk about the inequities that exist between white people and black people just historically, especially when you think about access to resources, particularly homes is something that he really, um, really focuses on and home ownership as this really important financial piece to build that generational wealth. And so then when you dig into, okay, we're going to pay back that value, you're talking about generations worth of trying to make up that difference. Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. Yeah. That's been the big thing. Like this kind of what, Kind of, when talking about reparations, I think it's in, you know, most people sometimes have the idea that it's potentially going to be like, oh, well, let's give them a, a lump sum, you know, um and maybe that'll fix it all. But many others are saying, well, no, it needs to be more than just a lump sum um, because a lot of the issues that have taken place have been systemic in a lot of ways, like you said, dealing with housing and things along those lines. So in what ways can you give a form of reparations that will be able to, I guess, overflow into multiple generations in a black community? And so many things like that, maybe land or assets or other access to certain opportunities from which we've been denied for hundreds of years that may give them the opportunity to have kind of generational uh, better outcomes for generations to come
0: so my question in all of this has been like who gets it um discrimination and uh systematic you know racism did you know did not stop uh in the 70s 80s 90s and you have a lot of Black people who are from different countries who have come since then and, you know, their outcomes are sometimes tied to some of these discriminatory practices. And so who gets reparations? Is it just for descendants of slaves? How do they, you know, decide and figure that out? I I don't know. That's another question, because to be honest, I could honestly see there being resistance from Black people who are not descendants of slaves who potentially feel like I, I live here. I experience this too. Why not me as well?
2: yeah, also yeah, oh sorry oh, oh, go it. ahead Go ahead also, I think it's it's an interesting question just' thinking about that, but thus far, I think as you look at these like social programs that existed, is there's, an unwillingness to just focus on one particular community and the ills done to a community. It's its kind of this, But well, we have to lift up everyone approach, not taking into account the very unique circumstances for Black Americans um, here in America. And what is that, like, how is that different? And are we going to be willing to actually step away from this rise the ties of everyone approach to actually owning up to the particular harms done to the Black community. Yeah.
0: Whoop, whoop. Preach, that that, that deserves a couple snaps right
2: there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's the thing, that's the whole thing, right? Because the whole idea of this whole rising tide raises all boats is, to me, faulty from the beginning because it's it gives the assumption that everybody's on the equal plane right like if you're on Mm -hmm. the same if you're on the if you're on an ocean you're on the sea or what have you that means everybody's equal and then we'll just rise the tide and everybody continue to rise but in this country that's not the case there's Mm -hmm. major gaps especially when we talk about race and so rising the tide does not make those gaps dissipate um and so it's trying to figure out ways to actually reduce the gaps instead of just trying to everybody rise right so a lot of the I think the policies have been kind of that taking that approach of rising tide. Um, raises all ships but in this instance you know I think even when they talk about reparations it's kind of been like you know Daphne has said too like this kind of trickle down approach right where they're just going to give it to everyone and then the black community will you know get the residuals or will get affected by it because everyone's going to get it and that's a scary thing uh, because that's mm-hmm. how most of the policies have always been enacted in this country as far as oh it's going to help everybody out but it really never helps us out uh, the yes. way it helps everyone yep. else out so I think You know, this conversation reparations is important, but also that it has to be talked about in the in the right way.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of what um, bothered me about Bernie's answer when he was uh, asked in his town hall. I appreciated him saying, like, what is reparations? Like, how are we even defining this? Because I think that's a good question. Like, I don't agree with anybody just saying, yeah, I support it, when they don't even know what they're supporting. There's no outline. There's no, you know, policy behind it. But what bothered me was then when he started, like, you know, we're going to invest in communities. We're going to invest, like, what does that mean? Like, be specific, because we've invested in communities. You think about the GI Bill. You think about, like, all of these major... Uh, like, national systems that have been put in place in the past and how, like Ty said, like Jameer said, like, they have systematically excluded Black people from wealth building. There's a book called When Affirmative Action Was White by Ira Katz-Nelson, and he talks about, uh, or Ira talks about all of the policies that, benefited white people and created the wealth that they have today and how black people, although they were supposedly eligible for these things, were excluded from them. And we have the outcomes that we see now. I don't want to hear no trickle down. I don't want to hear we're going to invest in all. And to be honest, uh, I actually saw this video where they, I think somebody asked Kamala Harris to, you know, kind of clarify whether she was going to have policy just for Black people. She's like, no, I, of course not. I'm not just going to have policies for just Black people. So, you gotta listen carefully because sometimes people are talking out of both sides of their mouth. Like, yeah, I support reparations. No, I'm not gonna have any policies that's only for Black people. So, yes. come on, y'all. So,
1: so <laughs> you don't support reparations. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's
1: simple. Um, Kamala's, I think, one of the policies that's been she's been trying to use as this kind of reparations type has been the Lift Act. Right, it's pretty much a tax plan um, that would provide a tax credit to working singles making $50,000 or less or families making $100,000 or less a year that gives kind of a safety net to this middle class. Um, Again, there's nothing there that would particularly benefit Black families, right? Nothing that would decrease the gap. It's for everyone. Um, You know, Elizabeth Warren, Warren has talked about things trying to, I guess, Re, um, reverse the effects of like redlining and housing discrimination. So she has like an American Housing and Economic Mobility Act, which is supposed to like, you know, essentially give, uh, I guess, more incentives to people and home buyers. In more affluent neighborhoods, give people who are from non-affluent neighborhoods the opportunity to get property in these spaces as well. Um, but she, you know, has declined to say that she would support financial compensation to descendants who were formerly enslaved specifically. Right. Uh, so again, uh, Julian Castro says he didn't even he doesn't even have any plans of reparations, but he said it's just worth discussing, and he would look into it if he were president. Cory Booker has the baby, baby bonds program um which would pretty give every child a savings account um even when the parental income de- decreases and also all that kind of stuff and Bernie Sanders as we know really doesn't have any plan for reparations and hasn't said much about it and you know kind of what Daphne said questioning it what would it look like etc but he's not he's definitely not trying to uh you know commit to anything along those lines for sure so you know all in all only only person that has directly said something is someone who isn't really a politician is Marion Williamson Who recently uh got on board not too long ago and is more of like a um what's the word maybe like a mental health guru something along those lines right uh um, a spiritualist and um, you know she says something like she would give like fifty five hundred billion dollars uh create funds or use funds that would be 500 billion dollars towards to the black community specifically um so she's the only one that said now people saying where are you get this money from what would that look like she really doesn't have any answers but she's the only one really that's saying like i'm going to give it to the black community specifically these funds um so again nobody's really attacking or addressing reparations in the form that it should be but i guess i would ask you all you know what if you had an opportunity you know, if you were whoever was president, they came to you and said, what should we do for reparations? What do you what would be some of your suggestions?
2: Well, I think the first thing I would say is pulling from um, Coates, his article here, is that there's been a bill uh, that has never made it to the House floor, H.R. 40, which he references the Commission to Study Reparations Proposals for African-Americans Act that exists as just a conversation starter basically a bill to have the conversation around what reparations would look like and begin to think about from a policy and legislative perspective what would we do how about let's start there and something that's already been created been crafted by by a legislator let's actually bring it to the house let's put it in front of our legislators that we elect and say hey have a conversation about this thinking about the historical ills that have existed and why there is this huge wealth gap for white families and the average black family. Like, why does this exist? And let's start to look at things like the GI Bill, which you referenced um, earlier, Daphne, that black veterans didn't have the same access to. Let's look at the history of home ownership and things like redlining that kept black families out of certain neighborhoods and created these, quote, ghettos for middle class and upper class uh black professionals for decades. Let's let's start to have these conversations and at least begin there and then we can start to talk about well how do we actually address that harm? Mhm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh kind of along those lines, we can point to very specific moments in our history that has created kind of like compounding or cumulative disadvantage for African Americans today. The education system, the housing system. And so, you know, if I were to gonna, you know, I do believe in a study, but if somebody were like today, what do you want, you know, it could be in the form of like very special, like, down payment assistance programs for like housing for uh, African American descendants of slaves. I would want some type of like GI Bill type program um, to fund like educational opportunities, uh, post high school educational opportunities for uh, African American descendants of slaves. Uh, And not just, you know, for the future generations coming up. I'm talking about pay off my student loans too. Okay. Okay. but also like for real for real investment in K12 schools because the the dream of brown the legacy of Brown has still not been fulfilled. Schools are just as segregated. I'm pretty sure you guys have recently seen a headline where like seven black students admitted to like this elite high school in New York out of like 800 and something students. Like So we talked about the college admission scandal, but baby, it's a scandal when we think about what's going on in these K-12 schools and how Mm -hmm. our students are just not being prepared to go to anybody's college. And Mm -hmm. I was one of those students. I almost flunked out of Vanderbilt And it wasn't because I didn't have the aptitude, it's because I did not have the opportunity. So when we think about, we need to rebuild K-12 schools to ensure that our students are prepared to seek any opportunity they want whether that is college whether that is starting a business whether that is going to trade school we need to ensure that if they do go to universities that they are not going to be bogged down by so much debt that they can't even buy a house even in a a neighborhood that has been like redlined. like so it's just kind of like i want k-12 education taken care of so i'll just say that you know the african-american descendants of slaves you know, should be able to leave college with limited to no debt, be able to get the down payment assistance that they need on a house so that they can realize what has historically been defined as the American dream. Mm-hmm. Give us our American dream. We didn't get the 40 acres and a mule, but, you know, give us everything else that you have denied us for so long. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess my take, too, and then we can you know move on to a couple of the shorter stories we want to talk about um, is, yeah, I feel like. With reparations, everything should be used to invest back in the black community specifically, not to like, in the past, it's been giving open up doors to these white spaces, but we never are allowed into these spaces, right? Um, And so it's like the ideas of where we are kind of denied the most opportunity is yes, K through 12 education, where a lot of our black schools are drastically underfunded, under-resourced, so we have to pump that back in there. Also within the black communities, it's like, it's, it's hard for us to be self-sustaining because we don't have a strong economy in these spaces of good jobs. One of the reasons for that is what we talked about earlier in the month is that we get very little access, if any, less than 1% to like venture capitalism and business loans or what have you. So there has to be access in that so that we can build up these black businesses so that way we can be able to you know, sustain our own communities due to schooling and through our own um, employment opportunities. And then also, of course, like you all said, housing and property is a big, big part of it. Building these assets, building up homes that are affordable, that are of good quality and not relying on public dollars, right? Because then that jeopardizes everything because then if landlord disputes or what have you or the 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 public um authority can just take you out of your home for whatever reasons i.e if someone has a drug offense um in the family you can't live there even if you're trying to reintegrate back into society a lot of things that have just continued to bar us in a lot of ways i think we need to kind of fight back in those crucial areas and i think we'll be able to see a change and we'll see generational change to me which is the most important but yeah like you said daphne i wouldn't mind them wiping them loans away too Got your money in my pocket
0: then i can do some things
2: <laughs> i'm with that too
0: yo try, I, look I, i'll be like okay okay we can see eye to eye now I ain't gonna I ain't gonna, you
1: know we good real. we good um let's talk about this uh, Flor- uh florida's new poll tax um you know that's very interesting in a lot of ways so Daph, i'll let you take the reins on this one and, and shed light on that for for us <laughs>
0: Yes, so we had a major victory last fall when Florida voters decided to restore the voting rights of the previously incarcerated. There was a there was an amendment. It was called Amendment 4. It passed with 65% of the vote and it restored the rights of 1.4 million Florida residents. Well within recent months, uh, GOP lawmakers have been instituting laws that would essentially require um, people whose voting rights have been restored It would require them to pay off all the fines and fees associated with their uh, past offense before their rights can actually be restored. And so one of the issues with that is, Sometimes these fees are in, like, the tens of thousands of dollars, so people might not ever be able to pay them off. Sometimes after, like, a 90-day period, these fines and fees are sold off to collection agencies and, like, they add, like, upwards of, like, a 40%, like, you know, interest to them. And it's just kind of like you are going against the will of the voters by trying to institute these extra policies or stipulations on voting in order to essentially suppress the the vote of these people who could vote out these GOP lawmakers, if we're being real. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I just, you know, that's what I was afraid of, man. It's like every time within our history, when there's a major form of like progression, they always find a way to either stifle it or take a steps back. And so I knew, I just had a feeling that this was a big move, but in Florida, this is something that a lot of those politicians don't want because they've upset a lot of those disenfranchised for years. So naturally they're not going to be your biggest supporters. And so if you just allow them to freely vote, that's going to be difficult for you to continue to promote or preach that rhetoric of whatever you were, law and order politics, what have you, um, knowing that this new constituent is out there. And so it's like, with this new constituent, they would have to begin to change their language a bit of how they address criminal justice reform and criminal justice system overall. Uh, but now I feel like they're not even trying to do that by putting all these other stipulations and all these requirements to continue to keep these individuals disenfranchised, just not the technical old way, right? It's more subtle ways, which may go a little bit more unnoticed than in the past. So it's, man, it sucks all over again.
2: Yeah, definitely. And it makes me think of what happened in Georgia, um, where you had the governor, the gubernatorial race with uh, Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp and how in his role at the time um, as Secretary of State, I think it was, he had the ability to control some of the voter registration Mm -hmm. and basically was able to suppress the vote for certain populations and in many ways influenced uh, that election. So just thinking about as you said, Terrell, you you take some steps forward as a progressive leap, and then there's the sweep coming behind it to to undermine um, any of that progress, and for these people, putting them in a situation where they they continue to be disenfranchised. So that's really unfortunate.
0: Mm-hmm. I wonder. I would love to see someone put together some type of fundraising campaign to like especially for those who are like your voting rights can't be restored over like 300 or 400 dollars I would love to see some type of campaign to raise money to help ensure that these people who have served their time um, who have you know paid their debt to society at least by you know spending time in prison, that that they can finish paying their debt and they can have their voting rights restored. So who's gonna get on that? Who gonna get on that?
1: Yeah, somebody getting on that ish. I'll throw some dollars that way.
0: Um, I would too.
1: And you know, even thinking about too, we talked about this a few months ago, even with Florida in particular when they, and I think we're starting to notice a trend because if Florida's doing it, I'm pretty sure we'll start to see other red states follow this trend of adopting criminal justice reform rhetoric, putting these policies out there, but then like, like Jameer said, undermining them in other ways because Florida also decriminalized marijuana but then there are studies that have been coming out saying that police officers have still been giving sanctions and tickets to black folks only and not white folks when they stop people with marijuana in their hands, right? Because it does doesn't mean, it's completely legal. You can still get in trouble for it, like getting a ticket or what have you. And so now Florida police and law enforcement are all automatic. Well, not automatically, but are. Um, applying that law unequally as well. I think we're going to be able to see other many other red states follow that same thing order, make this big policy change, but then in the finer print, really not make any changes at all.
2: Mm. And as you, as you, as you all talk about um, who might raise money for something like this, an organization that um, I know exists out there that really supports the causes of formerly incarcerated people. It's an organization called Formerly Incarcerated College Graduates Network, um, and I know that currently. Mm. On their page on Facebook, they uh, promote they have a thousand members across 43 states. I'm not sure if they're in Florida, but this is an organization that I think does a lot of good work um, to support uh, post-secondary opportunities for formerly incarcerated folks, but also supporting that community and their agenda in a variety of different ways. And I've seen some of the things that they do just following them on social media. So Mm -hmm. if you think about an organization that might try to get moving in this direction, that might be one to think about. Yeah,
1: no, that's a good suggestion. So we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll link inside. that up too on this episode uh, for those of Be interested in that. Um, another story that has took uh, you know been across the headlines this month has been with the shooting that happened in New Zealand. Um, you know, with the stories pretty much of white supremacists uh, in New Zealand went in with you know rifles and shot up. I believe it was a Muslim mosque, place of worship. Am I correct? Um, uh, In a mass shooting, Um, and so it's been all over the news. um, And I think, you know, not just besides the tragic, besides it being a tragic incident that took place. On the other end, it's also have been it also has been the 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 response from New Zealand and their politicians um, since the shooting has happened. And one of the biggest responses was that within six days of the incident, they changed up gun legislation. Um, where they banned semi-automatic rifles and large ammunition magazines only six days afterwards. And now many people in America are looking like, what is going on? Because America has been trying to have this gun control discussion for the past 25 years, and we've had multiple, numerous mass shootings, and yet we still haven't seen the changes that these other countries do when they only have one. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. I actually saw this... um... It was a tweet uh, related to that news, and the person followed up, you know, very sarcastic, and was like, did they even try thoughts and prayers? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, they went straight to the legislation. They didn't even try those thoughts and prayers, which is a good thing. Like, it shows that they actually care about the people in their country, and they see the direct link between, you know, mass death and these particular types of weapons.
1: Mm-hmm. And what I've also seen is that the um, the response from just not not just with the laws, but also uh, the country's residents, you know, have been banding together with the Muslim community and saying, like, these supremacists will not separate us and like hugging each other and praying with one another. I've even seen the newscasters um, who are not Muslim uh, give the news in Muslim garments, garments and stuff like that to say like this. If this pisses you off, well, we're gonna to continue to do it even more because they are a part of our community. Um,
2: Definitely, and did uh, either of you see the videos of the children um, in New Zealand um, doing uh, a haka uh, dance to to really, com- I guess, commemorate and s- celebrate or, um, or be able to in some way honor um, those deaths. and um, Again, that unity as a country and I think also the imagery of the leadership from different um, sides of the political spectrum being seen together, like in collaboration around these issues. And I think those just different shows of community and unification and really rallying around um, this particular very sad incident. To be able to say, like, we as a country are bigger than this, mm-hmm. and not letting political ideology, religious beliefs, etc., stop them from doing what they felt like was necessary to protect the people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah, so you know, really tragic thing that happened there. Um, I didn't see the children doing the commemorative dances, but I think you know it goes along the lines of everybody was doing there, and I just really um, and uh, just you know just, the, their response to the situation has just really been eye-opening and really, you know, when we look at America, it's like, we got to do better. Just, we got to do better. Because other countries better. get it. And they don't take millions of people dying and children dying for them to, for them to make the change. It takes one time. And like, enough is enough.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I do appreciate, uh, speaking of, like... National response to something. I can't say I appreciate the U.S.'s response to the whole Boeing situation, to where after two plane crashes with the Boeing Seven Thirty Seven Max Eight. Um, Initially, it seemed like there might not be uh, a grounding of these flights. I remember hearing like reading the first news story where like American Airlines and a few other airlines were like, it's fine. It's fine. And then, you know, the government said no. These will be grounded until we figure out what's going on with these planes. So I can say that's the first time. And I was really surprised that like capitalist interest did not win out in the sense of like them actually grounding those planes um, and putting safety over business. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. And so looking more deeply into these, you know, the Boeing crashes, um, 737, in Ethiopia, Indonesia, you know, now as they've been getting more information as far as what happened, what has happened, you know, although capitalism did not win, capitalism may be the cause of these mm-hmm. planes going down. Um, a big issue, and this has been uh, Thursday, the New York Times reported this, and pretty much what they've been finding is that there's been this particular set of hardware that these jets have, or these, these planes have, that essentially when the plane goes upwards too much and the nose is too high that the system kind of automatically takes over and kind of readjust the the direction and angle of the nose of the plane. And so essentially what it does is supposed to bring the nose back down um, to like even it out a bit, but it overrides the, the pilot's, um, you know, control of it. And so... <laughs> with these with this particular issue with these planes is that the pilots cannot regain control and the plane continued its descent downward um the big issue with this is that the piece that prevents this from happening either giving the pilots override or essentially giving them this warning light of how to fix it or whatever is a piece that the boat so what essentially is happening because um reading these articles that airline prices have been going down because there's more competition or what have you Airlines have been finding, well, you know, the creator of these airplanes have been finding ways to continue to make money. And so what they do is begin to charge um, companies that own their airlines for upgrades. Okay, so this particular upgrade was $80,000, right? Uh, To like, this particular issue with the planes so if you but they said it was an optional upgrade where it should have been mandatory so it's kind of like when you Mm -hmm. buy a car and you can like if you want to you can get like the basic model or you can be like oh i want nice chairs or i want a nice safety system or alarm whatever it is and it continues to raise the price that's now that they're approaching these airplanes Right. Mm -hmm. And so the issue is that these what the conversation is because of capitalism, that when it comes to safety, some things should not be optional. Right. Because smaller airports, smaller countries like Indonesia, (gasps) Ethiopia really can't afford this kind of equipment. And then now the planes went down because of it. Um, So Mm -hmm. it's been a big part of the conversation. Now, Boeing said oh sorry you know we understand the issue and now it's going we're going to put in all our models from this point forward it's not going to be an option but why did it take two planes to go down for all the planes to be grounded grounded for you to now make this decision after these lives have been lost right Mm -hmm. Um, so now it's putting more uh, scrutiny on these airlines as far as what they're using and causing optional they're putting safety they're putting actually finances and capital over the safety of its passengers
0: it's like making brakes and airbags optional. Yeah. Like, <laughs> exactly it's ridiculous. It's
1: like. Um, so, yeah, so I just wanted to highlight that with the Boeing situation, because um, I don't think a lot of people really understand, like, or really, if you're not really following, you may not know, like, what are the details of it? What caused it? And it's coming to find out that this that could have been uh, not have been an issue if Boeing would have just put these safety features in all its planes.
0: I would Also, another thing that came up is the fact that they weren't actually training pilots on how no. to use this particular model of plane. I think all they got was like a like a iPad video or something like they weren't like specifically trained on like the features of the plane, how to control it and etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- I feel like there were like failures all around I'm gonna have to look this up and I'll link the article but just so you know not all American Airlines opted to get that particular yeah. feature when I say American Airlines I'm not talking about just that brand I mean like Southwest like uh some of them did but not all of them. So just think about like how many times you've potentially flown over the last year or so. And, you know, by the grace of God or, you know, whoever you serve, like the pilot either knew how to control things um, because that's so unfortunate. Yeah. um,
1: Two points. The one is there's actually, I think they actually have the recordings from the black box on one of the planes that went down. They said the pilots, when it was happening, were literally pulling out the um, instruction manual, trying to figure out what to do because they were not trained mm. while this was happening, which is a very scary thing. And then, yeah, the out of the three U.S. airlines that have the Boeing 737 Maxis, um, two of the three have the upgrades. One did in an American and Southwest paid for the upgrades. Mm. United Airlines did not. That's
2: right. I'm so right.
1: grateful. I just flew american airlines this past week so i'm glad they had the upgrade so they care about my safety but sometimes i actually do fly fly united and that's a scary thing you know i
0: i avoid united with (laughs) i i avoid like i haven't flown them in years i just i don't like united like ever since they like beat up i think they beat up a guy over his seat and united has always just been like a no for me so but i'm so not surprised that they're like the only airline that did not pay for the upgrade yeah, yeah
2: I'm,
0: not I'm not surprised, surprised
2: <laughs> <laughs> but i think i think another interesting point is you're talking about like capitalism here and how it can lead to some of these things the seattle times actually did a a large feature on the same story and um, one of the things that they highlight is the fact that um some of the safety check work that was done to look at these planes actually was conducted by Boeing engineers who had been authorized to work on behalf of the FAA, the Federal Aviation mm-hmm. Agency. Mm-hmm. And so we're thinking about like that, that security and that safety piece there, like if you have the engineers from the company who designed this particular plane, also then coming back and doing the safety analysis, like how does, like what kind of confidence does that give you that this is as non-biased and objective as possible as well?
0: Mm-hmm. It's like the police policing the police. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is it really going to happen?
1: Pretty much. You got to have outside entities, you know, follow up on that stuff. Because, yeah, they're not, they're working for the company. They're not going to come back and be like, oh, yeah, these planes are terrible. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Safety precautions. Um, so, yeah.
0: But that's the issue of deregulation. Mm-hmm. And deregulation, that is like a, a a voting issue that you should be thinking about. If they're deregulating every industry... That, that means a lot for your safety. So, like, really, when y'all are thinking about voting, like, you have to move beyond these, like, hot topic issues like abortion and stuff like that. There are, like, so many things going on that, like, people aren't thinking about. Like, this is deregulation. Deregulation causes, like, death. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people's lives to be ended. So, like, we got to do better, y'all. Look into these issues as you're thinking about voting.
1: Yes, looking into yep. them. It's important. And um, I guess I want to leave with this final experience. Uh, talking As we're talking about airplanes and airports and one that I had recently in the airport coming back from vacation. We've had this conversation before about, you know, new software, not really recognizing black and brown skin. Right. Mm-hmm. The new facial mm-hmm. recognition software, whatever is used, even things people have issues with the sensors when they're trying to wash their hands and all that kind of stuff. Well, recently, I had my own personal experience with this when we came back from the airport um, a couple days ago. Uh, essentially, what was happening is um, I have, you know, my wife and I have global entry. And so that means when you're coming through customs, you can like kind of bypass the lines and and go get through it quicker and. And so this particular time, usually there are agents, but this particular airport only had, I believe it was Miami, had um, kiosk, right? And so they upgraded the systems, and I'm putting air quotes around the upgrade, where instead of like you just using your fingerprint, which were they're supposed to do, and your passport information, they use facial recognition. Mm. And so... So my wife and I were like, okay, we went to the first kiosk and we're like, okay, this thing like error came up, wasn't working. I'm like, okay, that's weird. So we're like, there's all these free kiosks because nobody's really there. So we're so we bumped, we jumped around to like at least four or five different kiosks, and the same message kept coming up. Then we noticed like, okay, so we see other people coming behind us, and then their kiosks were working. Everything was working <laughs> fine for them with their with their uh, passports wow. or whatever. Everything recognized. We're like, what the hell? Then Chris <laughs> was like. Yo, these it's working for all these white folks, it's not working for us. <laughs> I mean, they're just going straight through, no issues. So we thought it was the kiosk, the system, but literally every white person that went, went, it was perfectly fine, and we cannot get it to recognize our faces. So we had to go get the people. They had to put us in front of this other line, do it the old fashioned way. Then we went through, but that that was really upsetting in a lot of ways. But crazy that you know we I personally experienced. It. It's a real thing, y'all. It's a real thing out here in these streets. So be careful. Mm-hmm.
0: That is so crazy. Well, first of all, y'all fancy with your global entry and stuff like that. <laughs> okay. just gotta put that out there. But second, that is, that is so crazy. I mean, one, they need to fix that. And two, like, I guess, are you going to like file some type of complaint so that they can recognize that there are some issues with the system? Yeah, we need
1: to do that. I think Kristen talked about doing that, but yeah, we definitely need to follow up on that for sure
0: yeah and also give people multiple options the fingerprint and yes. the face if you're not going to yeah. fix the system yeah,
1: exactly. mm-hmm. so we just sitting there stuck ready to go home and now we gotta do those extra steps like come on now that's not what we pay for
0: yeah um, i'm trying to get i'm trying to get on y'all level though <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh man oh. but uh, uh but that's all i had anything else in, on your mind all the stories we covered a lot today a lot of great things
0: yeah, we covered a lot of great things. I mean, your although your story is upsetting, it's a little bit lighthearted. So, yeah. like, that might be a good place to stop because <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. Now the
0: things I could talk about is going to bring the mood back down. So. <laughs>
1: it sounds good well um well jamir we appreciate you joining us once again on, on these you know, sipping tea with bhd episode your insights about um, the college admission scandals very very important i think i learned a lot from you, and i'm sure our listeners did too so we really appreciate your engagement with that um, other than that for all our listeners continue to listen to us uh rate a review and rate us on itunes if you haven't did that yet follow us on social media we're on twitter Facebook, Instagram, at PhD Podcast. To keep up with all our latest content, go to Um You can also email us at bhdpodcasts at gmail.com with any ideas you have, um, any points, anybody you want us to interview, all that great stuff. Reach out to us. We're very good at getting back to people because we feel that's a very important thing. We love your engagement and we want this to be a, a communal podcast where everybody's involvement. If you have ideas for the blog, definitely send them our way, right it up and then we'll put it on the blog. You know, we love we love all your ideas and contributions in that way. Um, and other than that, share us with your friends, share us with your family, share us with your enemies. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst
2: fear. Thank you. all. Have a good one. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics and participate in our discussion forums.
1: Follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at BHD podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's
2: worst fear.